You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hello, all you wiretappers out there, back here, all by myself in the Gangland Wire studio, recording another show for you that I think is a kind of an interesting little, what we call a niche story, a kind of a side story that I'd never heard before, and I happened to stumble across while noodling around on the internet doing my research on the Chicago outfit. Now, we're going to kind of dip back into the hole-in-the-wall gang a little bit. And in regards to the -the hole-in-the-wall gang, I can't remember if I've said this or not. I had some telephone calls back and forth and and helped a guy named Ernie DeVino get connected up with a company that was trying to do a documentary on the -the hole-in-the-wall gang. And Ernie died, I just found out here recently. So he and uh, Frank Culotta, they were both in the Hole in the Wall gang. They both claimed credit for starting the Hole in the Wall gang. And I'll tell you right now, they didn't really like each other. They didn't really know each other later in life. But uh, see, Ernie never broke. Ernie took the hit and did some time out of that Bertha's caper that night. And he actually went to Tony Spilatro's trial and testified that Tony Spilatro didn't know anything about that, didn't have anything to do with it, trying to help him uh, beat that case. Uh, Of course, Tony was killed shortly after that, so I don't remember if he was actually found guilty for the -the hole-in-the-wall gang Bertha's burglary or not. But anyhow, on a sad note, uh, now both Frank and Ernie are dead. But this is a little different sort of a story, and I'm going to start talking about a Hollywood movie producer. Man, uh, he was born under the name of Avron Goldbogen, but he became known as Michael Todd. He started out as a young man. He grew up up in the north-central part of the United States and moved to Chicago. Started out in the construction business, then kind of got into the film industry when he was working on soundproofing stages when he's this old, when the pictures first changed from silent to talking films. During the Depression, he would go bankrupt, but he came back in the construction business and World War II came along. During World War II, we started getting into the movie business. And, and right after World War II, probably it's like more like the early 50s, he developed a new big screen film process in operation called Cinerama. I don't know if you remember Cinerama. I remember uh, probably when I was in uh, late grade school, they came out with these huge big screen productions that were Cinerama. They were mainly Westerns and, and had the big sky country as a background. He broke off from the company that developed Cinerama, which he had been involved with, and developed another widescreen film process that became known as Todd A.O., and that was immensely popular. His, uh, well, I think his first success with that was a uh, film version of the real popular musical Oklahoma. I'll try to sing Oklahoma for you, but it would not sound good. Just remember they spell out O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A, Oklahoma, OK. That's the extent of my singing, folks. His next big hit was Around the World in 80 Days, and I remember seeing that. I think maybe I was a freshman in high school or something. It, it was a huge, big production at a lot of fun. It was a comedy. It won an Academy Award for the Best Picture in 1957. But in the very next year, 1958, Michael Todd, he was at the very peak of his success. He'd won an Academy Award. He was going all around the country. He was getting all kinds of offers, and he was he was going from one part of the country to the other. I can't remember exactly where. It was a small private plane, and he was killed in an airplane crash. At this point in time, he was also married to the most popular and what some would say the most beautiful actress in Hollywood, Elizabeth Taylor, who was at the peak of her career in the 50s. 
They lived the Hollywood legend. They threw huge, big parties. They lived on a lavish scale. He left a huge, big estate after he died in this uh, airplane crash. It was estimated three to five million dollars. Now that doesn't seem like so much now. In 1957, three to five million dollars was uh, probably more like forty to fifty million dollars, thirty to fifty million dollars. Half the estate went to Elizabeth Taylor, and they'd had a daughter together named Elizabeth Francis. I wonder whatever happened, Elizabeth Francis Todd, or maybe she used the name of Goldbuggin. I don't know. I've never heard of the daughter. The other half of this estate went to his son by a former marriage, Michael Todd Jr. During the years since his death and internment, they had a big funeral in Chicago, and he was buried in Chicago. But people started a rumor that Elizabeth Taylor, as they closed the coffin down on him and put a big 10-carat diamond ring that was valued at $100,000 on her husband's finger. Now, authorities would later say that anybody who did even a little bit of research and read the newspaper articles about the accident would figure that there probably wasn't enough left of Michael Todd's body to put any kind of a ring on, but maybe, you know, I guess you might assume she'd just throw it in the casket with him. I, I don't know. Uh, some There would be a grand gesture, and people that had that kind of money, lived that lifestyle, you never know what they'll do. After the Christ, the reporters had questioned the manager of the Albuquerque, New Mexico funeral home. It was The Christ was down in New Mexico, and that guy claimed at the time that his body had been burned 100% and could only be identified by dental charts. They reported they made no attempt to embalm the body, and the family had said that there were, to their knowledge, there was no valuables in the grave. Now, he was buried in the Jewish Waldheim Cemetery in the Chicago suburb of Forest Park. So this is 1958. Fast forward about 19 years later, 1977, June, there's a lady visiting grave in the Jewish Waldheim Cemetery in Forest Park, and she notices a recently opened grave of some fresh digging that was not dug to, you know, in anticipation of putting a casket in it. And it was under the headstone that said Afron Goldbogen, but it also had the name Michael Todd on it. It was Michael Todd's grave. Now, responding coppers quickly learned this was the famous movie director Michael Todd and third husband of Elizabeth Taylor. They described this grave at the time for you guys that live in Chicago. If you happen to be in this area or driving by, it was on 100 feet south of Roosevelt Road, just west of Des Plaines Avenue. The cops found that the casket had been opened and the remains of Mr. Todd were missing. They believed that it happened sometime after 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon and Sunday morning when the cemetery reopened. I guess the cemetery, being a Jewish cemetery, was totally closed on Saturday. Kind of an interesting little sidelight. They noted that the casket was buried about four and a half feet deep and it was in the Congregation Beth Aaron section of the cemetery. They took the coffin out and placed it reasonably close to the grave site, where it, but it was hidden by some large branches. They smashed open the top. There was a glass case in the top. They smashed all that open, and crime scene technicians could not find any fingerprints. They did find some digging tools in the area. And of interest, I guess, as you do these investigations, well, were any other graves disturbed? Was this some kind of anti-Jewish thing or something? But they had no other complaints about disturbed graves in the cemetery. Cops, of course, got in touch with Elizabeth Taylor and, and learned that she had not received any threats or any demands. 
She didn't have any idea. Now, in, a, in an unusual coincidence, she had just visited the grave the Friday before they discovered it had been disturbed. She said that was the first time she'd been there in years. She happened to be coming through Chicago, and she had a stopover with some time to kill at O'Hare Airport. She was married to uh, Navy Secretary at the time, John Warner, who will go on to be the U.S. Senator from Virginia. I don't know if you remember or not, but Elizabeth Taylor was married to this Virginian named John Warner, who was a U.S. Senator. I think he maybe even eventually was a governor, but she was not the First Lady of Virginia. I'd have to check my facts on that one. A couple of weeks after this happened, the famous Hollywood private eye Anthony Pelicano got involved, and he claimed that he got information from an informant where the body could be found because they weren't finding any remains. He flew to Chicago. He directed the cemetery workers to a plastic body bag with some human remains inside of it, hidden under some other branches and leaves in a out-of-the-way section of this Jewish Waldheim cemetery. They would report that when they opened the bag, they couldn't really see any human characteristics to what was inside of there. They did say there was a heavy canvas web belt like an airplane seat belt inside the bag. And authorities took it into a hospital or probably to the morgue, and they determined that these remains were Michael Todd's remains. Pelicano told the police that his informant had uh, suggested to him that the thieves had removed the body because they believed that he was buried with this $100,000 10-carat ring. And once again, uh, Ms. Taylor and the rest of the family assured the police that Mr. Todd had not been buried with any jewelry. So, this is 1977. Three years later, in an unrelated situation, authorities stumble onto a guy who will end up solving this crime. And that's where we get into the hole-in-the-wall gang now. If you remember, in 1980, after being caught with a load of stolen furs, FBI agents had turned a Chicago outfit thief named Sal Romano. And before they actually surfaced him as a witness, he was involved in the hole-in-the-wall gang. And they put him back into the gang to report on what they were doing. They wanted to set him up and catch him. And this was about the time they were getting ready to do the Bertha score. So we've talked about this several times before, and if you remember, Frank Culotta was a street boss of this gang, and, and Tony Spilatro liked Romano and really kind of forced Culotta to take him on, according to Culotta. Ernie DeVino didn't tell me much about Romano. He just remembered he was a guy from Chicago that Tony wanted. Spilatro demanded that Culotta take him on. Now, if you remember, if you watched any of Frank Culotta's stories or listen to him. I can't remember if he said it on my podcast or not when I interviewed him, but he claims that he had a couple of Chicago cops come out during this time and tell him that Romano had some kind of a federal case and it just disappeared and they believed he was working for the government or working for the G, as we called it, or they called it. But Spilatro didn't care even after Frank reported this suspicious activity to him that he might be an informant and he said he wanted Romano to be part of the gang because he had a lot of expertise in electronic devices and the newer ones like motion detectors were coming on board at that time. There's more sophisticated devices and they were getting cheaper and more businesses were using them in the, in the 70s and on up into the 80s. You know, by now, I don't know how anybody breaks into anything with a camera everywhere that sends the video right to the internet. And also, you can't really sell technology. You can't really, even the simplest system, you can't stop them before they send out an alert. During this time, the another Chicago outfit thief named Peter Basile and I believe that's Basile, B-A-I-S-L-E, could be Basil, but I think it's probably Basile. Anyhow, Peter 
vouch for Sal Romano because they had stolen together before. So we're getting closer to the 4th of July weekend, 1981, and Sal Romano is going to have to come out of the closet, so to speak. He set up the gang for the FBI Organized Crime Surveillance Squad and the Las Vegas Metro Intelligence Unit. If you listen to my, I think it was a two-part series on the the hole-in-the-wall gang, you can get a lot more information on that. But they had this big burglary score planned, and they were going to enter through the roof of this place called Bertha's Gifts that supposedly had like a million dollars in gold and cash in the safe. And they just waited until they got inside and swooped in on them. And as they noted that night, Sal Romano just disappeared, I think, Frank said that, you know, he was supposed to put him with Larry Newman, told Larry Newman if he did anything funny to kill him. But Sal convinced Larry Newman that he needed to go do something, run an errand or get out of the car and get away from him. He just disappeared. And when they swooped down on him, Sal Romano was the only one that wasn't in Las Vegas Metro Jail when they all were brought in. Well, when FBI agents fully debriefed Sal Romano of all the crimes he knew about, he claimed that this Peter Basile had bragged about robbing the grave of Michael Todd in Chicago. He said that he told him that in 1977 that he, Basile, and a man named Glenn DeVos had gone to Todd's grave and dug up the body just like everybody thought they were looking for this $100,000 10-carat ring. Frank Collada also came in and became a government witness, and he also said the same thing that Basile told him the same story in 1982. Romano claimed that Basile told him he'd heard about the 10-carat ring, and he found a very drunk Glenn DeVos, who was just another hanger-on and criminal in his world, shall we say, and brought him along to help dig up the body. Now, supposedly Basile made DeVos do all the digging He also confirmed that Basile told him they'd rummaged through that burned and decomposed remains of Mike Todd, and they didn't find any ring. Basile also told him that it looked like there was a web strap from an airplane seatbelt. So it all, you know, it all came together. According to Romano, Basile said that after the casket was uncovered, he broke through the top of it and rummaged through the body bag. So, and and that's exactly what they found. Then they hid the body somewhere else. So he had all the, according to Romano, Basile said that after they rummaged through the body bag with Todd's body and they couldn't find the ring, that they hid it a, a short distance away from where the casket was which that all goes exactly with what they found at the scene that time. So, you know, everybody's 100% sure he's the one that did it. He wasn't just reading headlines and bragging about something. You know, a little more about Sal Romano. Uh, later on, he'd testify at the Family Secrets trial also. Of course, when you do that, they question you a lot about your past life. The prosecutors have to expose all your past life. So you don't want the defense lawyers going in and, and pounding you and about all your past crimes like, you know, like you were trying, the prosecutor was trying to hide something. So he said that uh, he had a rather good childhood, but later on in his life, he ran into certain people that got him involved in burglaries. He testified that locks and alarms always fascinated me. He told jurors that he'd buy locks and take them apart just to see how they worked. He said he developed a lot of skill in those things. At age 26 or 27, he started burglarizing coin-operated machines around Chicago. And in Chicago, if he got caught, he said he'd just pay off the police. And he said even if he couldn't pay off the police, if you caught a case, you just would 
get the right lawyer and you pay the lawyer and the lawyer would go in and get you out of the case. So, and, and we know we've reported on that several times before. It was wide open in the Cook County court system back in the 60s and 70s and, and probably before that, but for sure by the 60s and 70s, it, they had judges paid off. I noticed uh, Mike Byrne on the Chicago Outfit News Facebook site. Every once in a while, he'll put up a news clip where some outfit guy got found not guilty or murder. There was even one, he was kind of a periphery character, but he got found not guilty of killing his girlfriend. And you look down through it, and the judge was, uh, I think it's Thomas Maloney, who was the same judge that got paid off to let Harry Ailman off for killing Billy Logan. And it was exactly the same reasons. He said that even though they had one witness He didn't believe the witness, didn't find it credible, and believed that it was credible that the defendant said that he didn't do it. So a little more Chicago justice, shall we say. So they convicted Peter Basile and Glenn DeVos of this crime. I don't remember. I don't even know if I know how much time they got. They didn't get a lot of time, but at least they solved the crime. Chicago Tribune would later report that Michael Todd's remains uh, back then were reburied at a secret location in the Jewish Waldheim Cemetery, but reporters went out and checked, and the tombstone was put back in the same spot, and that was all filled in just like it was before. I Maybe somebody out there can solve this. Peter Basile, B-A-S-I-L-E. There's another man up there, an outfit guy, professional criminal named James Peter, called him Duke, Basile, spelled exactly the same. I don't know, uh, Peter Basile, uh, he didn't actually go on the Bertha score that night. But during these years, in 1983, he was involved in a conspiracy to commit robbery of the Balmoral Racetrack in Crete, Illinois. And during that time, there was an outfit burglar named Paul, also called Peanuts Pensco, who had worn a wire on another guy, an outfit killer and thief named Gerald Jerry Scarpelli, in connection with robbery. And as they were looking into that, the FBI agents learned that Scarpelli and, and this Duke Basile, I don't know if it's the same as the Peter Basile, had committed a number of Brinks armored car robberies together, and Scarpelli was nervous about Duke Basile, and they learned that Scarpelli had decided that he needed to kill Basile, and they told, you know, that's how they do it. I've seen them do this more than once. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It worked on uh, Culotta for sure. They go to you, and they have a little bit of wiretap audio, and it sounds like that somebody's planning on killing you. That'll turn a lot of people. And that turned Duke Basile. And for 16 months, he wore a wire and helped the FBI listen in on chats with Scarpelli and other associates. He ended up serving just a few years in prison for the racetrack robbery and, and went into the witness protection program. And it was you know kind of interesting. It was during one of these recordings with Scarpelli that the FBI learned about the famous mob graveyard in DuPage County. See, Scarpelli and Jerry Scalise and Harry Aleman and, and all these couple of others that were involved with the what they called the Wild Bunch, and they committed a lot of murders, and they dug up in the end, they dug up three bodies uh, in that particular area, and it's now been, like, I think there was like a hospital or something built over the area, so uh, there'll be no more bodies dug up up there, more than likely. The secret tapes that Basile made on Scarpelli led to his arrest, and he ended up, I don't know, he had some kind of a turnabout, and he gave a 500-page confession that exposed a lot of outfit secrets. He admitted to being involved in as many as 10 murders, and some of those that 
were exposed in the family secrets trial. And, and this is 1988, but he ended up committing suicide in the Cook County Jail about a year later. There's always been a lot of speculation as to whether Jerry Scarpelli actually committed suicide or not, but there's no speculation about this confession because he exposed a lot of mob secrets. And, and you know, probably nobody was ever arrested off of it, but it sure gave the Bureau a lot of insights to how the mob had been working during the 70s because he was intimately involved with everything going on. So he was a bad dude. So that's the story of the grave robbing mobsters. And my little, if anybody has any answer, is James Peter Duke Basile, the same as Peter Basile. I'm researching research, and I could never find that and figure that out. But I bet somebody up there in Chicago knows and can tell me. Thanks, folks. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.